Stay inspired on the go with Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast from internationally acclaimed executive coaches, authors and ministers, Albert and Comfort Okran. You will be inspired and challenged with strategies to consistently reach for new heights. And now, today's message. Dr. Odrigajiko is a senior lecturer, School of Communication Studies, University of Ghana, a well-known Ghanaian journalist and author or co-author of several books, including When the Watchman Slips, Is There a Place for the State Media in a Constitutional Democracy, and my favorite title, What is Fit to Print, Language of the Press in Ghana. Right, so Dr. Gajipo is our main guest for tonight, and she will be with us talking about the mass mass communication, mass media ethics, and the, the sheer power of the media or of mass communication. Dr. Audrey Gajibo, welcome to Springboard. Thank you very much, Albert. This is our virtual university, and welcome to our lecture hall. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've been touching base with communication as a critical success factor for anyone desiring to succeed at the highest level in any field of endeavor or in any career. Do you subscribe to the, the, the viewpoint that communication is critical for success in any career? Yes, and it's even more critical perhaps now than it's ever been in, shall I say, the history of the world because we are, as you know, in an information society, we're in an information age where the ability to access information, to process information, to synthesize it and to disseminate it in a way that will resonate with whoever it is you're communicating with is even more crucial than ever before. So actually, perhaps more now than ever before, we need good communication skills in whatever it is we're doing. Does that apply to the architect, the engineer, the person who feels that they are doing technical stuff and are therefore not necessarily in your line of communication, the lecturer, the journalist, the, the PRO? Does it apply to people in the technical areas as well? Absolutely, to doctors, to engineers, to architects, you name them. Because just think about it. Um, after they've done their technical work, they will need good communication skills to communicate it to whoever it is they need to communicate it with. They're not doing architectural work to keep it in a little bubble. They're doing architectural work for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Sometimes it's a purpose that is more corporate. corporate. Sometimes it's a, a personal purpose. But whatever it is, you have to have the ability to communicate what it is. That architecture, for you use architecture, some yeah. dealing with architecture, but architecture actually um, is a form of communication. In fact, Albert, just a couple of weeks ago, precisely because of that, um, the, they held a symposium, a workshop symposium, um, on uh, ar- architecture in Accra. Mm-hmm. The question, and, and, and the former mayor of Accra, um, Nat Nunuamatefio yeah. was spearheading it with an artist called Sena Mukujato and others. And the question was, how do we communicate the architecture of Accra, for example? It's not enough that we have architectural sites. People don't know about these architectural sites, their history, their importance, their significance. How do you communicate that? So, yes, indeed. A story is told about the, um, during the World Wars about uh, some soldiers who, were, who stumbled upon the enemy um, in, in a particular location and wanted to send a message back for reinforcements. And the message was, send reinforcements, we are going to advance. And distortions in communication, by the time the message got back to the camp, it said, send three or four men, we are going for a dance. 
<laughs> yes. You know, I play this game with my... I teach a, a course in the economics department, yes. quite aside from what I do at the School of Communication Studies for the Economic um, Policy Management Program. Yes. And I, I have this little thing that I show them on miscommunication. And it's right. a quite a cute thing. If this was visual, I'd expose your audience to it. But it starts... And the central message is that um, it's it's the, the uh, it's a message from top the CEO yeah. right down through the assembly line in the factory to the workers, and it goes through the CEO, the manager, the line manager, the factory manager, uh, until the supervisor, until it gets to the people. The central message is that there's going to be an eclipse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at such and such a time and so people are required to go out at such and such a time and they should then they'll be able to view the eclipse and they will need uh, special glasses yes. to be able to view it and there'll be a small fee for the glasses but by the time the message got down depending on all kinds of issues, how the fidelity between the people passing the message to each other and everybody's experience with the message and even what they thought about the person communicating the message. By the time we got to the final work, the message was something like, there's going to be an eclipse, come out, uh, and uh, if you're lucky, you'll see the CEO disappear. <laughs> Instead of the sun disappearing, you know. So. Interesting. Let's take you. Let's let, let's let's um, zoom in on your own person and your own career. One of the things we try to do in Springboard is to expose our listeners to um, s- celebrated achievers in various fields. We want to find out before we go into the subject, the person behind the subject. Tell us about your own career and how you got into communication. Did you always want to do to be a communicator? I'm not so sure, and you know, I, I, it's a good thing I teach at the university because I tell my undergraduates if you're confused, it's okay. Because yeah. I was confused when it's I was your day. age. It's allowed. <laughs> it's allowed. You find yourself at a certain point, mm. but you have to start thinking about it. But what I think was important, I, I graduated in history and English, and what I decided to, I need, I knew I needed to do was to do a professional degree to focus me, and I had to th- determine. What is it that you do best? And I, I knew that it was writing and um, communicating best. Well, I'm a bit of a talkative too, so it, I, in, in that sense, it may be a strength rather than a weakness. I mean, it was a weakness in class, but <laughs> and I'm not recommending it. You got punished all the time. My report cards always re-emphasize, I could do better, I should stop talking. But anyway, um, and so I thought I'd like to be a journalist, but it wasn't something that I think that I consciously thought about from age whatever, like other children, except that this same question was asked of me. My, one of my students asked it of me, and I said, oh, I don't think so. I, I don't know that I wanted to be a writer from an early age. And then the student said, but how come you were always writing when you were young? Because when I look at the Achimota, where I I was in secondary school. When I look at the magazines, you contributed quite a few articles. And I said, yes, but I didn't quite see it in that field. But I, I imagine that your talents begin quite early, you know. All I knew that was that I like to write, and I thought maybe journalism was a good idea. And so I decided to do my master's in journalism. Right. Right, let's come to mass communication. How different is it from personal communication? Very different, but not so different. Um, Different in the sense that um, for personal communication, it happens between two people 
or groups of people, small groups of people. Um, and you probably do know who you're going to communicate to. If it's uh, uh, interpersonal, one-on-one one -on -one, like we're doing here without the mics on, um, then you have a better sense of who you're communicating with and you expect feedback and you can anticipate the feedback and it's cyclical yeah because i i say something you read my body language as well as what i'm saying to you and based on that you give me feedback and and, and it's continuous in that manner but mass communication is challenging because you are communicating with an amorphous uh, mass out there mm. amorphous group of people who you may have a target audience in mind right now we may decide that well at this time the the people listening to joy fm and to springboard are likely to be of a certain age a certain demographic composition absolutely. but we are not absolutely sure and therefore the message we're tailoring is not tailored to an individual but tailored to an an, an anticipated group of people yeah. uh, who may or may not be who we have in mind, which means that whatever it is we're communicating, when we're communicating with mass, we have to be much more conscious of, we have to be much more generalized than we would be if it was one-on-one. -on -one. We have less information and we have little um, chance of feedback, particularly immediate feedback. Uh, we can't see the people we're talking to on radio. You know, and therefore we, we can't read their body language and say, this person is getting bored. They're about to switch off the dial. So I better change the way I'm communicating right. in order to keep their interest. We can't do that. But with, with um, personal communication, we can do that. Let's have a technical definition. Would you, for instance, consider somebody speaking to a stadium full of people? Would you consider that as mass communication? Yes, it is mass communication because that person would not know... Um, everybody in that stadium um, and so yes we'll be communicating to a mass except you decide what is the medium of communication well, how do we communicate in a mass way and so we communicate in a mass way through radio through television through newspapers and certainly through a PA system Right. For example, and I, I, I'm, in the build-up to this program, I've been looking at social um, networking um, communication platforms and yes. their relevance and the sheer power that they have in terms of information dissemination. I know of programs that are held these days that they just don't bother to do anything but put it on on Facebook on or Facebook, something, and yes. somehow they manage to squeeze out audiences that they want. Would you consider those also as relevant media for um, mass communication? Absolutely, and that's why we we live in a, an age where these dynamics are changing and there's also the issue of convergence where we use different platforms to reach the ultimate um, audience that we want and so the social media are increasingly you know I, I'll, I'll say I, I want to ha hazard that two years ago we wouldn't be talking about social media here Absolutely. only two years ago yeah. imagine because in our minds it wouldn't be that important in communicating so that if you wanted to send a message you wouldn't consider Facebook yeah. but now you do because you are realizing that a certain demographic group communicates only in Facebook in fact there have been discussions about hmm, if you want to reach young people I don't think we should automatically think that we need to go on radio or television or the traditional media or even the internet we must consider reaching them with what we consider news and serious um, 
um, information through what they listen to. You cannot change people's media habits. So if you are a communicator, you have to understand people's media habits. And if you have a message to communicate, then you decide that this is this target group's uh, media habit and therefore this is where I'm going to channel the message. It's no good sending a, 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 a message to young people in the newspaper. They don't read newspapers anymore. A lot of young people. <laughs> we would like them to, but a lot of them don't anymore. Right. But you still need to communicate that message. You still need to tell them what the news is. You still need to engage them as civic citizens. I suspect that the choice of media then must be one of the critical things that a good mass communicator must consider. Yes, and not just a good mass communicator, but anybody who wants to reach people a particular, uh, with a particularly serious message. And I think people make that mistake all of the time. They, they think that the message is so serious that people ought to pay attention, and that's not always true. Okay. You have to also consider the message is a serious one. It's important for people to hear, but how do I get people's attention? Because the other thing about the information age in which we live in is the information overload. And just, there's so much information coming at us from different angles, and also, particularly, the more information savvy you are, the more vehicles you have to access information that people's attention span is really quite short. Yeah. You have to figure out, how am I going to get this person quickly and, and get them to pay attention to my message? Wow. Right. So, um, Audrey, let me ask you, um, in terms of the power, the sheer power that um, mass communication has. I'm trying to find out how powerful is mass communication, how beneficial is it it as a tool, either for good or for evil? Yes, indeed. The media for good and evil is a reality, isn't it? Uh, Yes, the media can be used for good, but it can be used for evil, and examples exist as to the ways in which media is mobilized for social good, even new communication technologies. For example, in um, a country like Philippines, um, quite a few years ago now, they used text messages to overthrow, well, I mean, shortcut, they overthrew a government with, uh, with text messages when they had a corrupt president in the Philippines, um, and they were able to mobilize with text messages. Right. Um, so you can use it for good. Um, and, and even in this country, we've seen the media mobilize for good. People uh, simply by exposing uh, social issues, Um, I'll I'll leave politics for a minute, but really just social issues, um, have been able to compel action where action has not been necessary. One of my favorite quotations comes from a Nobel Prize um, laureate called um, Amatya Sen, who says that he's never, and he's an economist, but he said that he's never come across a country where there's free media and where there's farming. And why is that? The reason is because one of the properties of the media is that it acts as an early warning signal. So if you have a free media, they can, um, ahead of um, uh, state action, government action, alert as to what is going on. And if you are in a democratic dispensation, the state has no recourse but to 
to listen. act, right. to listen and to act. And I'll give you examples. In the last, just in the last year alone, I'll give you an example with only one individual journalist, Anas, who last year, I think it was, we know everybody, I mean, not everybody, but, you know, most people in Ghana know that that's, the Accra Psychiatric Hospital is a bad case, basket case. Am I lying? You, you don't think things are functioning well there, yeah. and I don't think so. But it took an investigative journalism to chronicle exactly how rotten that place is. And then all of a sudden you had policymakers saying, God, we're going to put together a committee, we're going to look into this, and we're going to deal with the issue. And then a few weeks ago, what did he do again with Coco? Who in Ghana doesn't know that we smuggle Coco along the border to Cote d'Ivoire? Why hasn't action been taken? Action has not been taken because, uh, you know, you didn't have the sort of expose that this journalist had. And so simply by exposing that issue and putting it in the public domain, it's no longer in the domain of official drum in some office and all of that it's here for everybody to see you're going to compel policymakers because policymakers know that their effectiveness will be judged according to what the public sees them as responding to that the public considers as important right let me let me ask you in by the same token when it comes to the what you what you may want to call the negative side of the, of the mass media um where people will send anonymous text messages destroying people castigating people peddling rumors and falsehoods or or using media that are not easy to trace to the sender what what can be done what can be done to hold kind of people accountable for what they send out there i mean the first thing that can be done is that we need to ask what, through what vehicles do they send these messages. And if we, for example, say, well, it happens on talk radio, for example, where people are publicly shamed and li- slandered and libeled by anonymous faces, then you've got to hold the professionals who preside over this medium much more accountable and there are ethics to all of these things you know how do you moderate talk shows in a way that disallows um, people from just calling in and calling people names and destroying their reputations through text messaging or through what they say on call-ins and the way that you mo- and, and, and there are actually technical solutions as well as professional solutions what are the technical solutions there are actually delay um, equipment that you can buy that will make sure that you delay what the person is saying so that you have a few seconds in to determine whether it is yeah that's one. But you need to be able to do that. Your success or your effectiveness in doing that also depends on your philosophy, the strong ethos by which you do your work, and your sense of professionalism, you know. And so, yes, there's a response to that. But I, I do think that in a, in, in a lot of, of, of places, including in Ghana, we, the the the, the, the liberalization of the airwaves and, and ha, ha, was, went ahead of putting in place the sort of guidelines that are needed to make sure that people are not uh, libeled and slandered and destroyed in the process of other people's freedom of expression. 
You mentioned the issue of ethics or restrictions or controls or regulation. Um, let me come to the issue of ethics. For the person sitting behind the microphone, um, talking to people across the world, as it were, via the internet, to the person um, editing a newspaper that reaches um, tens of thousands of people, to the person putting out a press release on behalf of a corporate organization, to the person sending out any information that will be consumed by large numbers of people. What ethical restrictions should, should they observe? There are lots of ethical restrictions that they ought to consider. Um, depending on the kind of communicator you are, uh, journalists have their code of ethics, so do advertisers, so do public relations professionals, for example. They are the three traditional, not the only, but the three traditional um, um, mass communicators that we have. Um, and of course, people doing online journalism or work, and increasingly citizens doing blogging and all of that. Yeah. But let's deal with the citizens blogging uh, are not necessarily professionals, but let's deal with the professionals. There are strong professional codes of ethics that have at the bottom of what they do the ethos of truth-telling, for example, in journalism. Okay. Truth-telling and minimizing harm go hand in hand. So that in putting across a message, you have to say, how do I tell the truth and at the same time minimize harm? Because that's very important. Why? Because all of these people, particularly journalists, work in the public interest. The, the whole profession of journalism is underpinned by a very strong public interest motive. So I, um, would you say that the truth of a matter is not enough justification for saying it? Yes. The truth of the... <laughs> truth is no justification. That sounds like a little trap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, given the history of that. But yes, it's not enough. For example, if you have a young person at the center of a story, an underage person yeah. at the center of the story, you, if, in order to maximize truth, you have to tell the story, you'd have to name this young person etc etc at the center of the story but it, that's not enough the ethos of your profession require that you also decide hmm by naming this young person there are these ramifications right okay even if it's an investigative report so you go in and you're investigating some sort of wrongdoing in a secondary school for example it's important to tell the story it's important to expose that wrongdoing is is going on in the secondary school. But one of the things you have to consider is, in exposing the story, would I also be exposing a young person who may be ruined simply because they are named in the story? So journalists always have to balance a number of things when they're doing their stories. And one of the things that they constantly deal with is truth-telling and minimizing harm. Right. 31 minutes past the hour of 7 o'clock, and if you just tuned in, that was the voice of Dr. Audrey Gajipo, the acting director of the School of Communication Studies, um, interacted me, with me in your virtual university trying to pull out the critical issues in mass communication, the sheer power of the mass media, and also the, the ethical issues that we must consider as we try to reach many people across different cultural and demographic um, boundaries with our message. Now, I just was trying to find out um, earlier on what 
which of which media channel is more dangerous when it comes to ethical issues? Is it, is it TV, radio, or print? <laughs> That's a difficult question, and I'm From not sure I know the answer, except to say that sometimes danger, I suppose, or the harm is is magnified. In, on the channel that is people are most exposed to. Right. And so, in a certain sense, you can say that perhaps radio, only because in Africa is the most pervasive medium and it's, it's what people listen to the most. Um, but then you could also consider all of them, and I'll tell you why. Then you consider um, television, for example, and you say that, but the visuals confer their own magnitude on an issue. When people see visuals, they tend to believe it even more than when there are no visuals. Right. You know, uh, uh, we, we, there's a certain assumption that photos don't lie, pictures don't lie, you know, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words and that sort of thing. So, so that also, when you have a story on television, it can convey a certain magnitude. Having said that though, even though newspapers, particularly in our context, are not as widely disseminated as other, other media, um, uh, you know, I mean, even our best circulating papers don't go beyond perhaps 70,000 uh, people uh, per edition. And our low literacy rates mean that people are not reading as much. They also carry why? Because one, they are a permanent record, e more easily retrievable. If somebody tells me, oh, guess what? There was this story in Daily Graphic uh Last year, it's very easy for me to go to last year's Daily Graphic to find that story than for me to go to last year's Joy FM broadcast to find that story. Well, so there's, there was a case where the, the judge requested that the radio station produce the tape, and they're yes, still waiting. And they are still waiting. Why? Because radio is transient. Right. And until you have, and you know, I said earlier on that part of the reason about liberalisation was we liberalised and we didn't put in place all of these guidelines and laws, no broadcast law, nothing like that. Is that there's no law that says you need to keep. A recording of what best practices says you can't go on air without taping the show right and keeping a record of it for x number of years for retrievability purposes but there's no law that compels us so when you have radio stations that uh, are resource starved they're not they're going to tape over every single show you know the next day they are taping over it you know and therefore you they can't produce a record. We want to find out from you, Dr. Gajipu, how can we improve as communicators, especially those of us who communicate to large numbers of people across board? What will be some of the things that we need to look out for in order to improve? I think the first thing is not to take communication for granted. I think that because communication is something that we do when we're born, we have to communicate. Even as babies, we communicate. In fact, the axiom is that you cannot not communicate because even if you don't talk, you are communicating. Right. You know, um, your silence communicates something to me. But if you want to communicate effectively, it does mean that you need to be a good listener. You need good listening skills um, so that you can, and you need empathy so that you can roll take, so that you can adjust your communication uh, message according to uh, what you glean from your role taking, even as you communicate. Um, you need good writing 
and speaking skills, good presentation skills. Um, to be able to communicate effectively. And um, you can only do that if you read and if you practice. Right. So number one, don't take communication for granted. Number two, good listening skills. Number three, empathy. Number four, role-taking and adjustment. Number five, good writing and presentation skills. And you want to read, read, and read if you want to become a great communicator. Write those down in your diary and implement them. And a year from now, send Dr. Gajipo text uh, uh, an email or on Facebook and say, well, my life has changed as a result of the things I learned from you. Let me ask you, in public communication, does what one say matter as much as how one says it? I like that. I think that both matter. Um, and people tend to think that what they say matters more than how they say it. Right. And even the timing of when they decide to send the message is important. But I think that how you say it can be very, real, very important. I mean, when you're presenting, for example, you've got to structure your presentation in, in, in an ordered manner. And you have to be able to deploy pauses where you need pauses, emphasis where you need emphasis, um, so that the effect it will have impact on your audience. So yes, how you say it is, is, is very important. And I, I wouldn't want to negate one with the other. I think it's important to, to, to determine exactly what it is you want to say and to say, how can I say it effectively? But the only way you can do that is if you have a target audience in mind. Who do I want to send this piece of communication to? What do they already know about what it is that I want to say? And so what is it that I want? What is the effect? I have to decide what is it that I want from this piece of communication. And it will help you determine how to tailor that message. Let me ask you, um, as a communicator and an authority, uh, for that matter, are there times when you watch television and you feel like literally pulling your hair out? Are there instances <laughs> when you are like, no, but he, he or she can't do that? Yes. Um, people don't always listen when communication is taking place. And that, I think, is a major problem. Even people who are interviewing uh, have a set of questions in mind and therefore they're in a hurry to go through their questions and then they're not quite listening to for feedback from right. who they're communicating with and therefore they're not able to maximize that communicative opportunity that they have you know and so you you keep you, you keep saying don't 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 interrupt right. just listen to what this person is saying because that interview is going to be even more interesting if you follow what the person is saying instead of deciding that I'm coming with this person with this set of questions that I've prepared and they've got to answer it. That's, that's one. And then also, too, articulation is really very important and people get very careless about the way they communicate. You have to communicate in a way that um, brings credibility to you. Uh, you. You want people... To, to believe that what you're saying is credible. So you need to say it with confidence. You need to have your facts right. Uh, and you, you, you need to say it in a way that that is um, well articulated. You can't mumble about it. You can't fumble about it, you know. And then people have much more um, confidence in what you're saying, including in language skills. I think that these days we're getting really, really very careless about the use of language. 
We think, well, it's not our, English is not our language, and so who cares? Who cares about tenses? Who cares about verb, uh, subject verb agreement and all of those things? But people do care. And sometimes, on the other end, you, 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 you do hear people talking, saying something that you can punch holes in, but because they say it so well, people dare not question. Right, so that's the other extreme. <laughs> so that's the other end of the, the equation. And so you've got to be careful about language use, about facts, and about the manner in which you communicate. What is development communication? Development communication is using um, a, a, a variety of different communication tools and uh, methods to communicate uh, developmental issues. Um, issues of health, issues of education, issues of infrastructure, um, etc. And uh, so, for example, uh, the communicating, and you can do it through the mass media or through other ways, social marketing communication, BCC, um, also, for example, are all ways of, uh, are all subsets of development communication. Right. So it's really deploring communication in order to improve and bring about a development within the society in which you're communicating. You can use theater, uh, you can use all kinds of, of tools to engage people in effective communication so that they understand developmental issues and, and, and it, and, and they understand messages that can empower them to bring about their own development. And from where you sit today, what's the greatest challenge to quality communication in the practice of journalism in Ghana today? I think not paying enough attention to uh, professionalism and ethics. I think that um, peop people are not being ethical enough in in the ways in which they approach their work as as journalists. And that, 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 that would be your number one thing that you would look out for? I think so. I think that we what? need stronger ethics. Why would it be the case? Would it be the case that they are not professionals, they're not trained in that way, or they are simply not observing them, or the market forces are, are determining what they do? All the above. <laughs> All the above. Some people are simply not trained. They haven't gone through journalism school. And you know that you don't need to go through journalism school um, to to work as a journalist. I mean, the definition of journalism by the uh, International Federation of Journalists and by the Ghana Journalists Association and what is accepted in many countries is if you derive your livelihood out of uh, what we call journalism, and that is gathering and packaging news and information, you're probably you're, you're a journalist. And so you don't have to go through a training institution because training happens also informally. It's not just formal. Right. You know, so informal training can happen within the newsroom where you're employed because perhaps you have strong, you're an economist. Right. And they need somebody to be able to report on the economy economic desk for example so you come in and that's what you do you gather news and you package it and you disseminate it in a way that is easy for people to read uh, or to listen to and understand um, and that's how you earn your living so you are a, a journalist you know um, and your training will probably come from 
from within the newsroom where your editor will say, no, this is not right or this is a better way of, of reporting on it and all of that. Thank you very much. Dr. Gadipo, it's been, it's been a pleasure having you on this show. What, your closing thoughts on our virtual university, uh, our lecture hall, your closing thoughts. You know, I think it's, it's great that we live in an age where we can deploy technology to spread knowledge to many more people beyond our classrooms. Um, and I think that I have enjoyed my time being on here, but even before I came on, I have listened to some of your your um, programs. Um, I listened to the one with Dr. AC and signed, enjoyed yeah. it tremendously, for example. And I, I really think that you're doing a great job. Thank uh, you very much. Because you are bringing knowledge beyond uh, the four walls of the classroom or wherever it is that knowledge used to be under the tree because some schools still <laughs> teach under the trees <laughs> <laughs> and to many more people. So, you know, I wish you luck and Thanks, I, I hope you can continue with the good work. Thanks, Audrey. And if you have a pen, the 10 commandments of communication from Dr. Audrey Gajipo, number one, don't take communication for granted. Number two, have good listening skills. Number three, have empathy. Number four, role-taking and adjustment. Number five, good writing and presentation skills. Number six, credibility. Number seven, pay attention to professionalism and ethics. Number eight, factual accuracy. Number nine, appropriate articulation. And then number 10, good command of the language. So these are the 10 things that can help you become a better communicator. Thank you for listening to Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast by Albert and Comfort Okran. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages at Albert N. E. Okran and Comfort Okran A for free resources and information about our itinerary, conferences and media broadcasts. For speaking appointments, email albert.okran at icloud.com or SMS or WhatsApp us on plus 233-2499-99000. You may also subscribe to amazon.com or your favorite online bookstore for copies of our inspirational books and audiovisual materials. Until we come your way again, always remember, you are blessed indeed. Searching for the light has come. He's a return to